Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy. O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man. A reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me for trouble is near. For there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look. They stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen you answer me. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify Him. And stand in awe of Him, all you descendants of Israel. For He has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Nor has He hidden His face from Him. But when He cried to Him for help, He heard. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear Him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before Him, even He who cannot keep His soul alive. Posterity will serve Him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare His righteousness. 
to a people who will be born that he has performed it. Well, Lord, that is blessing to the reading of his word. Would you join me in prayer? Our great God, our glorious King, we gather our hearts and our minds around your word this morning and God, we lay before you our gratitude and our praise. God, you are the only one who is eternal and incomprehensible. You are unchanging. You cannot increase and you cannot be diminished. We do not come today to add anything to you and there's nothing that we can do to take away from you or to cause um, there to be any sense of urgency in your kingdom or um, to threaten your throne. God, you are self-sufficient. You don't need anyone. God, we come to you this morning Not because you are needy, but because we are needy. God, we do not come with any idea of trying to pay you back for your kindnesses or trying to pay for sin as if we could. But God, we come to you because you have made a way to come because you've sent Christ To die for sinners and to redeem them to yourself. Because you've made us to be members of your household. And to be heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Because you have blessed us immensely. And God our hearts are full of gratitude to the one we love. God we thank you that you have come and softened our hearts and conquered our wills with love. We thank you, Father, that you have brought us not just um, to a state of neutrality with you, but you have brought us to a state of love. God, we do praise you. God, we Praise you that as we've been seeing, there's such a sufficiency in Christ Jesus, and that that sufficiency remains. And that no matter how many times we come and draw from that sufficiency, or how many people come and draw from that sufficiency, it is not diminished at all, and it still remains, and the fountain is still opened. God, we thank you that there's not only a sufficiency in Him, but that there is a willingness. We don't come and find that the storehouses are full, but the doors are locked. God, you, you invite us yourself. It pleases you for us to come and to, to lean upon Christ and to find our contentment in him. It pleases you for us to come and to ask, to bring our petitions and lay them at your feet, to cast our cares upon you, remembering that you care for us. God, you have made so many promises to us, great promises. 
Promises that at times we have a hard time wrapping our minds around. And God, if, if you didn't tell us that they were real, if you didn't assure us of your, your promises, if you didn't assure us of your faithfulness to keep the promises, God, we would, we would fall short again. We would doubt. We would fail to come and, and to cry out to you, to cling to you. But God, you are faithful. And because you are faithful, not because we are, not because of any ability that we have to hang on, but God, because you are faithful, we trust that the day will come when every believer here and every person who has ever embraced your claims through the finished work of your Son will see you face to face. God, we will be made into the likeness of your son without any sin anymore and without any shame anymore. And then we'll see you face to face and we will love you with nothing in between. But God, until that day, we ask that you help us. God, help us to lay aside the tyranny of the urgent and the the claims that the coming week has on us. Help us, God, to honor you for a little while this morning by closing our ears to those things and by not looking at self, but to look upon you and to see what you say, to hear from you from your word, to see you, God, as you really are, and to become preoccupied with you. God, open our eyes and teach us wonderful things from your law. God, we pray and ask this not only for us, but God, all around this globe as the gospel is preached, as Christ is exalted. God, everywhere, men and women and boys and girls look to you for help. We pray, God, that you would help, not because of our goodness, but because of Christ. Because He is holy. Because He is sinless. God, we pray that You would keep us in Your love. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Matthew chapter 27. As Jesus hung on the cross, there are seven different things that He said. And we're not going to look at all seven of those this morning, but I do want to mention them briefly. And... They've been given titles. I don't know if this, these are original with, with A.W. Pink, but he gives them titles that are handy. And so I'm also going to mention those. The first thing that we hear from Christ as he hangs on the cross is, as, as Pink has said, the word of forgiveness. Jesus speaking to uh, the Father about the crowd that's gathered there says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. The second word is a word of salvation. This is in Luke chapter 23. Jesus said, uh, the thief said to Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. And then in John 19, the third word from the cross is a word of affection as he speaks to his mother and to John. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene, when Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, 
He said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then to John, Behold your mother. The fourth, which is in our text here in Matthew 27, verse 46, is a word of anguish. Up till now, he's primarily been talking to, for the benefit of other people. But now in verse 46 of Matthew 27, he cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then there is a word of suffering. We find this also in John 19. Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. Following that is a word of victory. It is finished. And then finally, a word of contentment in Luke 23. Jesus crying out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Most of these sayings of Jesus are recorded by Luke and John. This fourth saying is only found in Matthew and Mark. So the different gospel writers included things for their purpose, a purpose given to them by the Spirit. They're trying to convey certain things, and they don't all include everything. At the end of John's Gospel, in John chapter 21, verses 24 and 25, he writes and says, This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that not even the world itself would contain the books that would be written. So there are a lot of other things that happen. We can't record them all. And we have four different gospel accounts writing from slightly different perspectives and, and giving us different details. And they write to communicate a purpose. And so uh, Luke records some. Matthew records some. Mark, John. But actually Matthew and Mark only record one each. And it is this one. Why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If they would only record one and that's it, they must have believed it to be important. They're certainly trying to tell us something. Charles Spurgeon, in a sermon on this verse, writes and says, I think I can understand the words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? As they are written by David in the 22nd Psalm, which we read earlier. I understand that. But the same words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me when uttered by Jesus on the cross? I cannot comprehend. Well, you may be able to um, relate to that. You know, we look at David and we hear him say, God, why did you forsake me? And, and you know, really, honestly, we can think of some reasons, can't we? And David probably could, too. David was not without sin. David was not without fault. And certainly in his own mind, he could replace some of those. And if the words were our words, we could think of plenty of reasons why God might forsake us. Was it because of this, God? Or was it because of this? But then we look at Jesus on the cross. And he says this. And we have to stop and ask why. Because he's sinless. 
There's no fault in him. Even the people who crucify him, you know, they look on and say, there's no fault. So why? Well, we're going to try to look at this this morning, but I acknowledge we're in deep water. And I doubt we'll do anything other than scratch the surface. But I do want us to, to consider this passage this morning and think about the why. I would like to begin by addressing the scene that we see here in verse 45 of Matthew 27. It says, now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. Jesus was crucified at nine o'clock in the morning. From noon till three o'clock, the ninth hour, darkness is on the land. Some people have suggested that this was a storm, but you know, none of the gospel writers mention a storm. Some have suggested that it was an eclipse, but that actually is an impossibility. Jesus died um, at the Passover, which is on a full moon. And I did not know this until just yesterday. But only a lunar eclipse can occur on a full moon. Solar eclipses always occur on a new moon. Something about the way things are lined up. So it's not a natural possibility for there to have been a solar eclipse when Jesus died. This was not a natural darkness. It was not coincidental. God has turned his face from his son. Thomas Manton writes and says, At the passion of Christ, the earth trembled. The sun seemed to be struck blind with astonishment. And the frame of nature to put itself into a funeral garb and habit as if the creatures durst not show their glory while God was manifesting His anger for sin and Christ was suffering. After three hours darkness, He, Christ, complaineth not of that, that the sun doesn't shine, but of the sad eclipse that was upon His own spirit. God, why have you forsaken me? Well, the crowd had been raucous. But as darkness descends on the earth, you've got to think that there's some hush what's happening. This isn't natural. This isn't normal. And now Christ lifts up his voice, we're told. He speaks with some vehemence. And he does so not primarily to be heard of men, but of God who has hid his face. And he quotes Psalm 22 and we've read Psalm 22. It's almost as if God has written a script for this day that unfolds. But God, uh, the God-man, Christ, is not reading from a script. He's not simply quoting words like, you know, oh, by the way, I'm supposed to say Psalm 22.1. But this is, this is his reality. This is what is he, he's enduring. He's expressing the, the agony of his own soul. He's been forsaken by God. And alienated, suffering his wrath. Christ saves the likes of us from God's wrath so that we can know God's love. Well, what does it mean to be forsaken? I don't think the word holds any great significance in the sense of some hidden meaning of 
you know, some secret definition. It's to be abandoned, to be deserted. We can understand what that word means. You know, it's, it's to be left alone, but not in the sense of I need some time by myself, but, you know, I'm in dire straits right now and everybody's left me. There's no help when I expected help. Really, I, I think of the picture in the Old Testament, not the picture, the, the account of David sending Uriah to the front lines, the front lines in the heat of the battle and telling Joab, withdraw the troops. He forsook Uriah. He put him there to die and he forsook him. But what does it mean for Jesus to be forsaken? And we'll spend most of our time right here. And I want to address that first by talking about what it does not mean. There are some people who would suggest that Jesus only appears to be forsaken of God here. But that was not reality. He's, he's not really forsaken. He's, he just appears to be. You know, we are people who are prone to mistakes. We're prone to misunderstanding what's going on around us. Misrepresenting the situation. Misunderstanding other people. Misinterpreting what they've said. You may see at times a small child running through a department store or through a church building. Mom, mom, like I've been abandoned. Where did mama go? And the reality is mom hasn't gone anywhere except to the other room to take care of something. Maybe to get something for the child. But the child is just sure. You know, I've been left alone. And they've completely misunderstood the situation. They've misread it. But it's not only small children that misread situations or that may feel this way. In Isaiah chapter 49 verses 14 through 16, Israel, Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me and the Lord has forgotten me. And God comes back and answers. Can a woman forget her nursing child? And have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget. But I will not forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. We may think at times that God has forsaken us. When in fact... He's at work for our good. He is working providentially to, to bring us into the likeness of His Son. And we think, God, where are you? Sometimes God tests us by withdrawing the sense of His love to teach us not to lean on self or to teach us not to place too high a value on the world. And we think He's left us to ourselves and He's left us forever. In our distress, we think God's far away from us and we wonder where He is when in fact, He's right there. And oftentimes, on the other side of the suffering, we look back and we see He was right there and He was caring for me and supporting me and, and taking care of me the entire time. He sustained me. Our emotions, our sense... Of whether God is helping us or, or not helping us is not a very safe guide. We don't do a good job of interpreting what's going on when we're in the middle of it. 
In our fretting about situations, we often make them worse than they are. Emotion overcomes logic. We dream up every worst case scenario in a terrible game of what if. And paralyzed and incapacitated by our imagination, we wonder, God, where are you? In times of terrible stress, whether it's mental or emotional or physical, we don't tend to think straight. But when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Though he was under terrible stress, he was not misreading the situation. He had not misunderstood what was happening. He was not misinterpreting the events of the day. It was a real forsaking. Though there was a real forsaking of the God-man by the Father, we also want to be careful and remember that there was no separation of the Father from the Son. Jesus, the God-man, Jesus is eternally God. He's always been God and he'll always be God. And in that moment on the cross when he he cries that way and in those hours when he endures that, he is no less God. Jesus said in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. Though there are three persons in the Godhead, yet there's one God. And these three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, share a single divine nature. If Jesus ceased to be God at the cross, then there's a change in the divine essence, which is immutable. It's unchangeable. Malachi 3.6, God said, I, the Lord, do not change. And that's I, the Lord, the Father, I, the Lord, the Son, and I, the Lord, the Holy Spirit. I don't change. And so there's no way that he could stop being God. You are probably aware that for Christ to be a savior for us, it was necessary that he be both God and man. Both of those were necessary. That's when we have the God man. As God, he provides an infinite value to the sacrifice that's made. A value that no individual, no created individual could provide. If you and I could live a perfect life and offer a sacrifice to God, it would not be sufficient. Certainly not sufficient to pay for anybody else's sin. But being God, he provides an infinite value to the sacrifice. But being man, he is able to represent us to the Father and bring us to God. If Jesus stops being God for even a moment, then he is no longer a fit sacrifice and we are still lost in our sin. He is forever God. He does not for a moment stop being God. And along with that, then in this forsaking, he does not in any way stop being man, the God man together, united Jesus is both God and man. And when once he was born as a man, there's never after that any time when he lays aside this other nature, either nature. Jesus is now and eternally our Emmanuel, God with us. When Jesus died, like every other person that dies, 
His soul left his body. But his natures did not split. He remained the God-man. So, he's forever that. He always has been, he ever will be. There's a sense in which it is proper to say that the sufferings that Christ endured, and this forsaking being a part of that, he endures in his humanity. The eternal God cannot die. Christ in his humanity dies. And yet, his humanity and his deity are so joined together. To say something happened to one nature is to say it happened to the God-man. This one man. This one person. So in scripture we read of things like this in 1 Corinthians 2.8. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The Bible doesn't separate it there and say they, they crucified Christ and His humanity. No, they crucified the Lord of glory. Or in Acts chapter 20, 28, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. God purchased it with His own blood. Well, it's the humanity of Christ that has blood, but it's proper to say that God's blood was shed on the cross. So there's no division at any point between the humanity of God and the deity of God. Next, it does not mean that God no longer supported Christ. Why have you forsaken me? It does not mean God does not support me in any way. Even though all sense of that support was removed, Jesus was still upheld by everlasting arms. In Isaiah 42, 1 the Bible says, Behold my servant whom I uphold. In Psalm 16, 8, the psalmist says, I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 25, Peter applies this to Jesus. As Peter preaches, he says, For David says of him, of Christ, I saw the Lord always in my presence. For he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. And by the way, even though God forsakes him at the cross, you understand Christ does not forsake the Father, but as he cries out, what does he say? My God! My God! God's power was still available to sustain Christ, even if he doesn't feel that power at work at the moment. God's presence, He hasn't disappeared. He's still there. Even if Christ is not sensible of His presence and His smile at the moment. When Jesus' sufferings were beginning, and He's preparing His disciples for what's to come, He tells them in John 16, verse 32, Behold, an hour is coming, and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. 
next, which I think is fifth. Though Jesus became the sin bearer, and though he was forsaken by the Father, it does not mean that he stopped being holy for even a moment. We understand he became sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He was made sin for us. We were made the righteousness of God. But we haven't become intrinsically righteous. We have an alien righteousness. And he hasn't become intrinsically sinful. He's become a sin bearer. He's our representative carrying our sin to God. And he did not stop being holy. John 1.14 describes the Lord Jesus as full of grace and truth. John 3.34, he has the Spirit without measure. And that's true of him always. And it's true of him at the cross. All the divine gifts and all the divine graces that he needed to accomplish his work were his in perfection. Colossians 1.19 says it's the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. He was and He is always holy and pure. He never thought a sinful thought. He never had a bad attitude. He never committed a sin. He never failed to do what was required of Him at any point, including His time on the cross. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 7, verse 26, it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. When he died, Peter writes that he died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. He did not stop being just at the cross. And even when he cries out, God, why have you forsaken me? He has not stopped being just. He does not for a moment become a sinner. If he were a sinner, even for a moment of time, he would not be a fit sacrifice. He would not be this high priest that the writer of Hebrews talks about. He would need to make a sacrifice for himself first. And he doesn't need to do that because he is holy and undefiled and separated from sinners. When God forsook Christ at the cross, it was not because Jesus had become less holy. And the forsaking itself was not in any way a diminishing of His holiness. It was a suspension of His comfort. Sixth, when God forsook Christ at the cross, it does not mean that God stopped loving Jesus. Or that he stopped being pleased with his son. John 3.35 says the father loves the son. And has given all things into his hand. Jesus was his dear son. He is his beloved son. Colossians 1.13 says. Isaiah 42.1 Here's my servant whom I uphold. My chosen one in whom my soul delights. He's The delight of his father's soul. How could he not love him? He's not just his delight. He is a picture. A representation if you will. 
of the exact nature of the Father. Hebrews 1.3, He's the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. The Father loved the Son before the Incarnation. He loved the Son throughout His earthly ministry. And the Father continued to love the Son when at the cross, our Mediator gave Himself for us in obedience to the Father. Jesus said in John 10, 17, For this reason the Father loves me, because I laid down my life so that I may take it again. He loves me because I do lay it down. He doesn't stop loving Him when He lays it down. If the Father loves the Son for obediently laying down His life for sinners, why would we think that He would stop for a moment loving the Son when the Son actually perfectly performs that for which He was sent? The expression of the Father's love may have changed for a moment at the cross so that Jesus cries, Why have you forsaken me? But the heart of God did not change toward the Son. And when the Father forsook the Son, it did not mean that He was absolutely and eternally forsaken. It was just for a moment of time. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. What does it mean then? That's a lot of what it doesn't. What does it mean? We're talking about God forsaking the God-man. When God forsakes someone, what does that entail? You know, if, if your spouse abandons you, most likely that means they've left. They're not there anymore. But if God forsakes someone, does that mean He's not there anymore? Well, no. God's everywhere. The psalmist said, where can I go? If I go down into to hell, He's there. Where can you go and escape His presence? There's nowhere you can go and leave God. And because He's everywhere, there's nowhere He can go either and leave you behind. He's everywhere. And so his forsaking of Christ or forsaking of anyone else is not, it does not mean that he's disappeared and he's no longer on the scene. But God can withdraw his favor. He can remove the sense of his love and grace. He can do that actually, hell, eternally without the favor of God. Or he can do that so that you're not sensible of it, even though it's still present. Like when he chastises his children. You may not be aware of how much God loves you while he's chastising you, except that the Bible tells us he disciplines his sons whom he loves. So, on the cross... The sky turns dark. Jesus cries out, why have you forsaken me? Why? Because all comfort was withdrawn from Christ Jesus. He had no sense of the love of God, no sense of God's pity, no sense of God's support, even though those things were there. And this was, for Christ, a completely new experience. The loss of the sense of the Father's favor was something he had never known before. He had always been the Father's delight. He remains now the Father's delight. Or or more properly, he'd always been aware of the Father's delight. But where was that delight now? Now he has endured 
all the physical things that happened at the cross. And we don't have time to go into all of those this morning. He's endured the abandonment of his own disciples. He's endured a lot. Now he endures this. Many of you here have known what it is to walk in close fellowship with God. To enjoy his presence. To know God is near. And then to lose something of the sense of that presence. God's still your God. You're still his child, but he's not present in the same way that he was before. How much more grievous would that be for Jesus to lose that sense of his presence when he had enjoyed it longer from eternity and enjoyed it fully when you have enjoyed it in part? I mean, surely the absence to Christ would be much more startling than it is to you and I. I started to try a little experiment this morning, but I'll just tell you about it. If I had someone go over here and turn the lights off, you may not even realize they were turned off. Some of you might catch it and think, you know, did the power go off? But it really wouldn't startle you. But if somehow we could put a light switch on the sun and I could flip it off right now, every one of you would turn and look and think, what just happened? You know, our experience of God's presence is much dimmer than, God, than Christ's experience of God's presence as he walked on this earth. For him to lose that was much more shocking than it is to us, maybe to our shame, but, but also just because of who he is and that he walked in perfection, that he'd always enjoyed it. All of those things come into it. You and I have never enjoyed the love of God to the fullness as Christ enjoyed and continues now to enjoy the love of God. And so your loss of the sense of the love of God cannot possibly measure up to the loss Jesus experienced when God forsook him. If God withdraws the awareness of his grace and love towards us, again, we, we could wonder why, but we could probably come up with reasons. Again, like Psalm 22 and David. You know, God, was it this? Was it that? Is it something I'm not even aware of, but I'm certainly culpable of? But we look at Christ Jesus and we, we are startled to wonder what reason. I mean, if we're looking for reasons within himself, there are none. He's holy and undefiled. And for him, the God man, to lose any part of that fellowship was, in a sense, to lose part of himself. Our enjoyment of God's love is full of stops and starts. I mean, it was a time when every one of us here did not enjoy God's presence. Did not. We may have enjoyed expressions of his love, but we didn't perhaps recognize them as coming from God. And we didn't love God. But if you belong to Christ Jesus, a day came when that changed. And you began to love God and you began to appreciate more fully the experience of his love towards you. But even now, are there not stops and starts? Days when you feel His nearness more than others. 
Days when you feel His absence more than others. Days when you may be completely indifferent to either. But Christ's enjoyment of love from eternity past was a, an enjoyment that knew only one interruption ever. And it's here. The more we enjoy something, the more we feel the loss of it. We see this in all kinds, every area of life. It's true of, of food. There are certain foods that you really enjoy and certain foods that if you never saw it again, eh, who cares? Coconut, eh. Banana pudding, hey, there's a loss, right? There's foods, there's sports. There's some sports you enjoy, others that perhaps you don't. Music. If they stop playing that music, that would be a loss. If they stop playing that music, is that really music anyway? You know, there's all kinds of things like that that you, you, you know, are different tastes. We appreciate. And because we value that, the loss of it would feel greater than the loss of that that we don't really appreciate. While the Christian has the joy of knowing the favor of God, we have to admit that it is a mixed enjoyment. We are a people filled with earthbound longings. And there's always, in a sense, this competition going on. The love of God versus the flesh that still clings to some of this stuff. And we're constantly having to look away from one to the other. And then there's also just the fact that our enjoyment of God's favor, of God's love, is a small foretaste of what's to come. While Jesus enjoys it in its fullness. And so for those reasons, we have to say that we don't enjoy these things like Jesus did. Jesus knows only one stop. There's always been a start, if you will. It's always been. It always will be, except for this moment when shockingly, startlingly, it's not there. Our grief at the loss of a relationship similarly is tied to how we value it. The closeness of that relationship. The intimacy of that relationship. One of the nice things about Facebook, there are many negatives, but one positive, I have kind of seen where people are that I haven't seen in 30 years. I haven't physically seen them still, but, oh, so-and-so's over there. This is what they're doing. And you kind of, you know, have an idea of what's going on in people's lives that you didn't know otherwise. I have also seen where people that I went to high school with or college with have passed away. I haven't kept in constant contact with them. I can't say that we're close friends at all, but an acquaintance passed away. And you are sorry to see that. You grieve the fact that they're gone a little bit, but not in the same way that you grieve the loss of a close friend or of a child or a parent or a spouse, someone that you are intimately acquainted with. You grieve that loss far differently than you do the, the acquaintance. There are people who've died in the recent storms. I don't know any of them personally. I grieve the fact that they died in those storms, but I don't know them and I don't grieve them in the same way that I might grieve your loss if you suddenly died today. Christ's grief 
at the loss of the sense of God's nearness was so much greater than ours because of the greater intimacy that he enjoyed with the Father. He and the Father had always had an uninterrupted nearness with no no hiccups, no disagreements, no differences of opinion. There had always been perfect harmony between the persons of the Godhead. And now suddenly, it's gone. Let me give you one more. The holier a person is, the closer that person is walking with the Lord, the more that person will enjoy the fellowship and the nearness of a holy God. If, you, if your sins are in your face and you know it and God comes near, surely that's frightening. But if you're very aware that your sins have been taken away by Christ and that you stand before Him clean, and if not perfectly, yet really you're walking with Him, And He comes near. Is that not glorious? Here is a sinless Savior who enjoys the presence of the Holy God as one who Himself is perfectly holy in a way that you and I can only imagine about right now. But enjoying that presence, the loss is felt in a way that you and I just cannot completely relate to. Now, I'm saying all that because when God forsakes Christ, when Christ cries out, why have you forsaken me? There might be the temptation to think, well, he didn't go anywhere. How big a deal could it be? It was a huge deal. It was something that had never happened before. It was sad and it was terrible. You may have felt abandoned before, abandoned by a friend. You may have felt abandoned by the Lord. Many people have actually been abandoned and forsaken, but no one has ever experienced such a desertion as the Son of Man felt here. Not even those who suffer Eternally in hell. When you think about the things that Jesus endured on that day, there are many. Beaten, his beard pulled out, hit, whipped, made to carry his own cross, nails driven into him, hanging there naked. None of those things move him to speech. None of those things move him to cry out. None of those things move him to say anything about the people who are doing this other than, Father, forgive them. But now he cries. He lifts his voice loudly. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?
When God removes His favor, this can happen for several reasons. It can be in an absolute and final way, which is the reality of hell. It's not the absence of God's presence, but it is the absence of His favor eternally. Everyone living on this planet right now enjoys the common grace of God. You're alive. You've got food to eat, air to breathe. There's, you know, God has been good. But hell is the absence of His favor. It is the terrifying absence of goodness. The terrifying absence of grace. But God can also make a person feel this absence for a period of time. And this could happen for several reasons. Sometimes God makes us feel His absence as a kind of testing. We read about this in 2 Chronicles 32-31, where God withdrew His presence from Hezekiah. The Bible says God left him alone only to test him. That he might know all that was in his heart. If you are not aware of the nearness of God as his child. He may be testing you. To see what's in your heart. He also can do this as chastisement. Again he is a good father who knows how to discipline his children. And he never does too much or too little. It's always perfect. Sometimes to discipline his children He, as a wise and good heavenly father, uses this as an instrument of his discipline. In Isaiah 54, verse 7, the Bible says, For a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. It wasn't a final or an absolute forsaking, but it was a disciplinary action. For a brief moment. There's a third, and it is as a legal punishment. This is not something that we endure as Christians, but it is what Christ endured for us, a legal punishment. This is hell when permanent legal punishment. Christ endures a legal punishment that is a temporary length of time. The curse of the law rests on Him. And as a temporary punishment applied to Jesus, as the just reward of our sin for the reparation of our wrongdoings, He is forsaken by God. This being forsaken by God, this bearing the sense of that loss is a big part of the satisfaction that Jesus makes for sins. Jesus endured a sense of pain, certainly at the hands of men, but also He endures the wrath of God. But He also endures a sense of loss as God's favor is not there. This this sense of grace is absent. And this is, these two senses are absent in hell. There's a sense of pain, a sense of loss. Christ endures these while hanging on the tree. So, though not eternal, God's forsaking of Christ was punishment, a satisfaction for sins. Our sins deserve a complete and total everlasting forsaking. 
Again, it's the curse of the law. Spiritual death, separation from the goodness of God. Jesus was forsaken so that we need not be eternally forsaken. This forsaking of Christ comes at the time when He most needs the Father's comfort. All earthly comforts are gone. The disciples have disappeared. There's there's nothing in His surrounding that's comforting them. The crowds that were crying Hosanna, many of them are now there hurling invectives at Him. There's nothing to comfort Jesus in an earthly sense. He becomes the sin bearer. Surely He's aware of that. But now all sense also of the Father's love is gone. So that all that's left to Him is His faith. And when all sense was gone, his faith cries out and clings to God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the name by which he addresses God, Eli, Eli, or Eli, Eli, it's my strong one, my strong one. That's who you are. You're my strong one. Why have you forsaken me? Well, let me give you a couple of objections and then a few applications and we'll wrap this up. There are probably more objections than these, but here's two that I want to mention this morning. Someone might say, how can we say that Jesus paid the penalty for our sin when hell is eternal, but he was forsaken only for a period of time on the cross? Those don't seem to compute to me. Well, let me give you an illustration that might help a bit. Imagine a person making $400 a week. They have a medical emergency. End up in the hospital, and the bill is a million dollars. It's huge. They have no means of paying that bill. They have no visible hope of ever coming up with that money. And so their budget's already tight, and they make an agreement with the hospital, we'll pay you $100 a month, best we can do right now. And the hospital agrees, and so they start paying $100 a month. If my math is right, and they don't charge any interest... They'll pay that bill off in 833 years. They will never pay that bill off. That debt will always hang over them. They can't live long enough to pay that bill off. Now, imagine the same same medical emergency occurs to a person who's worth hundreds of millions. And they also get the bill for a million dollars. They go in and write a check. And the debt is paid now, immediately. When we think about a person dying without Christ and spending eternity in hell, what we're seeing is a person attempting to pay a debt on which they cannot even pay the interest. Hell is eternal because they've sinned against an infinite God and they do not have the capacity to pay the debt. If they could pay the debt, then the just thing would be for hell to have an end date. But they can't pay the debt. They can't make a dent in the debt. And so that debt is always hanging over them. And for eternity, they're paying that debt. This debt to justice that cannot be paid off. But then you have Christ Jesus, an infinite person. 
And he approaches that debt for the sake of his redeemed. And at the cross, in those moments, he writes the check as it were. He pays it. And he can pay it in those moments because he is a person of infinite value. He's holy, undefiled, separated from sinners. And he brings a worth to this sacrifice that you and I cannot bring. Jesus did not suffer the eternity of God's wrath. But Jesus did suffer the intensity of God's wrath. The full weight of it fell on him. And he carried the load. He paid the debt. And he's able to cry victoriously what no person in hell will ever be able to cry. It is finished. A second possible objection. If God actually removes his favor and support from those who suffer eternally in hell, but God still loved Jesus, even when he removed the manifestation of his love, how can we say that God's satisfied with that sacrifice? It doesn't seem that those things are equivalent or equitable. And I suppose in one sense, they're not exactly equivalent. Again, one is infinitely worse. And the worst one is the removal of favor from Jesus. When God removes his favor from the sinner who is without Christ, that person is getting justice. They are receiving the wages of their sin, which is death. They are getting what they've asked for their entire life. But when God removes the sense of his favor from Jesus, he does that to one who acts as a substitute, who himself is holy, who is not receiving justice for himself, but justice for his people. The person who dies and goes to hell goes there and goes there because of their sin. Christ dies in obedience to the Father. They're completely different situations in that regard. But Christ is able to satisfy the justice of God. And he satisfies it when the person in hell never satisfies it. I'll give you a few things for application. At the cross, we see God forsaking Jesus as a punishment for our sins. This is what was required. Every time you sin, every time the Holy Spirit reminds you that you've sinned, you should stop and think, for that, I deserve to be eternally forsaken of God. The horrendous sins of those people out there deserves the eternal forsaking of God. But listen, your cherished sin that you love and protect and try to justify, you deserve to be eternally forsaken by God for that sin. That thing that you count as a little thing, but that God finds detestable, deserves to be forsaken forever. And the only reason that you are not forsaken forever is because Christ Jesus was forsaken on the cross for you. He carried the wrath of God so that you cannot and will not have to carry the wrath of God. 
At the cross, we see the consequences of sin. We see them all around us here, but at the cross, we see them most clearly. We see the consequences of sin at their worst. What does sin do to a man? We see sin make people to become monsters. We see the effects of sin on ourselves and on our families. We see that one of the effects of sin, one of the consequences of sin is death, physical death. And for the person without Christ, eternal death, spiritual death. At the cross, though, we see that sin turns men into murderers of the Son of God. This one who's holy and undefiled and separated from sinners, what do they do to him? Crucify him. Crucify him. And we see in the consequences of sin, the wrath of God poured out. The just reward for sin. And looking there and seeing that happen, you're seeing what sin deserves. It's not some aberration. It's not some odd thing. The only odd thing about it is that Christ would submit to come and be a sacrifice for you and for me. But the wrath of God poured out is not the odd thing. That's justice. We look at the cross and we see the justice of the Father. God will not overlook sin. He will not overlook sin. He will not overlook sin, even to the point of not sparing his own son when his son becomes a sin bearer for you and for me. If that's true, sinner, apart from Christ Jesus, do you really think that God will overlook your sin? You reject him again and again. You hear his gospel and you spurn it. Do you really think that he will for a moment spare you when he will not spare his son who bears the sins of others? We look at the cross and we see the love of God to redeem sinners in its clearest picture. Christ comes and dies and he does it for the glory of God. God sends Christ to die and he does that for his own glory. But that's not the entire story, is it? I mean, that's real and it's true and I'm not diminishing it. But we can't get past the fact either that Christ says, I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. Or that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He sends his son to die for sinners. And Christ willingly goes to the cross to die for sinners. We see God demonstrating his love here. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you want to get the proportions of God's love, you go and you look at the cross of Christ. And there you see here is love vast as the ocean. Loving kindness as the flood. When the prince of God, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. Of all the miseries that Christ endured, the greatest to him was this one God hiding his face. The Christian should 
put the dots together and come to the conclusion that our greatest loss, our greatest grief, is when God hides His face from us. There are other hurts, certainly. There are other burdens we carry, but there's none that is so detrimental. There's none that should, should alarm us so much as when God hides His face. Do you count it a small thing? Not sure why. Not sure it matters. Are you oblivious to it? When the Father withdrew from Christ, He cries with a loud voice and a great intensity. How different we are. We cherish friendships more than we cherish the nearness of God. We grieve over our pets more than we grieve over the absence of God's presence. Believer, Jesus was forsaken by God so that you will never be completely and absolutely and utterly forsaken. It is an impossibility if you are in Christ Jesus. Christ bore that for you. So when you feel the absence, do run to God and look for a reason. Grieve the absence but you don't have to grieve in the sense of God has forsaken me forever and he's gone. And he'll never be back. No, Christ bore that for me. And I will never utterly be forsaken. It's because Christ goes to the cross and is forsaken of God that David can say something like, I have never seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. It's because Christ goes to the cross and is forsaken that the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians can say, I might be struck down, but I am not forsaken. Unbeliever, if you do not come to Jesus, if He is not forsaken of God for you, then you will be utterly, completely, absolutely, eternally forsaken of God. And there's no reason why except that you will not come to Him. We'll close with the benediction at the end of 2 Corinthians. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.